Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Becker's Orthopaedic Spine and ASC virtual event. I'm Alan Condon, Managing Editor of Becker's Spine Review and moderator for today's session, the spine tech lighting the industry on fire. Innovation moves at a rapid pace in healthcare, something that has true for the spine field in recent years. Robotics continues to make noise across the industry. Newer technologies like augmented reality are picking up steam, and tried and tested techniques such as endoscopy could gain more traction as healthcare continues its push to the outpatient setting. Today, I'm joined by two spine surgeons to discuss the most exciting technologies in the specialty today, which devices may not live up to their hype, and what they're planning to implement at their practices in the near future. Um, so without further ado, uh, I'm going to turn the floor over to each of our surgeons to hear a little bit about their roles, their background. Uh, Dr. Grant Worker, I'd love to turn the floor over to you first. Thanks, Alan. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having both of us. Um, it's good to be on with Dr. Biden. He's my esteemed colleague from the Mayo. Um, I'm Brian Gantworker. I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I am a private practice neurosurgeon in Los Angeles, California. Uh, I trained at Case Western Reserve and then did a spine fellowship at the Barrow Institute in Phoenix. And I've been out here for on about 12 or 13 years. And um, I'm really excited to talk about this today, I think because there's so much coming down the pipeline, um, especially trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. Um, so, but as a private practice neurosurgeon, I tend to be a little slower to adopt technologies that they filter through. Um, but still, it's, it's great to be able to take advantage of new stuff that's coming down to help patients and do better in terms of surgery. So thank you again for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Weinberger. And uh, Dr. Biden, I'd uh, love to hear a little bit about you and what's going on at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks very much, Alan, for uh, having us. And thanks to Brian um, for uh, uh, you know the kind words. And it's a pleasure to be on with both of you today. So I'm Mohammed Biden. I'm a neurosurgeon at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I specialize in complex spinal surgery and spinal oncology. And uh, that's been a big part of uh, my practice. Um, and so it's really a pleasure to be with both of you. Fantastic. Well, as I alluded to in the intro, uh, obviously a lot going on in the spine technology field, but we'll dive right in. Uh, Dr. Biden, when you think about the broad spectrum of uh, spine technology, whether it's 3D printing, AR, VR, robotics, uh, et cetera, et cetera, what technologies do you really see as a fad and what do you think is here to stay and make make all the difference? Yeah. There's, in any field, I think there's going to be a number of technologies that either get introduced or there's an attempt to get them introduced. To me, there's a number of exciting technologies that are on the market today. And uh, we're able to do, for me personally, and I think for many of my colleagues, we're now able to approach fairly complex spinal conditions with minimally invasive approaches. And that's something that's different um, from the historical approaches to spinal surgery. That's something that I think is here to stay and will continue to advance. Um, robotics, you know, today I did two robotic cases. I personally, you know, I think it's a good technology and I think there's value in it. Um, you know, obviously there's a learning curve and, you know, the story, I think in terms of robotics versus navigation is not fully settled, but I do think that that's an exciting technology that can help our patients and help make things, um, for surgeons more efficient, more reproducible. I would say there are a lot of technologies that get introduced that are unlikely to have a long sort of permanence or long staying power. And there's many things that get brought, you know, people introducing them. And at the end of the day, 
to me, for a technology to have permanence, have staying power in neurosurgery, it either has to make things better for the patient or better for the care team, or ideally both. So the patient has to find significant benefit, reduce blood loss, uh, reduce length of stay, whatever that may be. The care team has to find significant benefit. There's some technologies out there that are, you know, about sort of uh, uh, surgical ergonomics and not making things, you know, potentially as difficult in surgery that are intriguing um, or uh, efficiency of the OR, speed of the OR, um, you know, getting patients on the table, off the table in a safe and efficient manner. And I think there's a lot of technologies that do neither. Um, and, and I don't think they're going to, I think that'll just wash itself out as they come onto the marketplace. And so those would be some of my thoughts on that and, you know, look forward to seeing what Brian would have to say. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Dr. Brian, I know you kind of touched on a lot there. Obviously robotics, two cases performed today. Dr. Gattenberg, I know you've got some experience here as well, but I'd love to hear from your perspective, kind of what's moving the needle and what you can kind of fall by the wayside. Well, it's kind of timely, um, the conversation, because I just got through doing a revision and uh, there was this, a system uh, inside the patient that was a system that's now out of manufacture that was basically two pedicle screws and a rope connecting them together. And um, I had to take it out <laughs> and I had to get creative, um, you know, to get it out. So, and that thing has fallen by the wayside. It was sort of like, you know, unearthing a dinosaur, basically. Um, we couldn't tell what it was prior to the scan and actually I had a clue as to what it was looking at the introp spin um, before surgery started. And I said, oh my God, I can't believe that's in there. And, you know, of course the mad rush, then we figure out how to get it out. So technology can come and go as Dr. Biden said. Um, and I think things that have staying power have to have some utility. And at the end of the day, it has to either probably save the hospital money or save the surgeon time or save the patient uh, suffering. And that's kind of what it comes down to. Unfortunately, um, technology is the whiz bang that comes with you know exciting new stuff. It has to be commensurate increase in value for or remuneration for the people who use it. Otherwise, it, it doesn't usually go. Um, so for instance, like with endoscopic spine surgery, which I really want to do more of, the problem is, is that the CPT codes are the same for whether you do it MIS or through the scope. And although it's a totally different set, and Dr. Biden maybe can comment more on this too, it's a totally different set of skills. I mean, it's very, very different. I mean, the anatomy is obviously the same. Unfortunately, we don't get paid more for it. And so it's hard to sort of adopt that and bring it in, but there are there are enabling technologies too out there that are super exciting for me. For instance, um, the AR and spine that's coming through, uh, you see people donning glasses and, and doing decompressions that way. The advancements in the robots, especially being able to do decompressions now and, and sort of cage planning. Um, and certainly you know, neuronavigation is here to stay. Um, I didn't do a robot case, but I did do uh, an interoperative spin with the, uh, with a uh, intraoperative CT scanner and it made my life, I was able to put in six pedicle screws in about ooh, 22 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, maybe Mo's even faster than I am, but that's about as fast as I'm willing to go just with NAV. But that, it was, it's really, I mean, to me, that's an integral part of my workflow now. You know, I'd use it a lot. And so I think technologies, there are ones that sort of have, you know, plus or minus, I can take it or leave it, but it's when a technology becomes integral to your work 
makes things so much easier. I mean, thank goodness, you know, with navigation, it makes the rate of takebacks, you know, for malposition screws much, 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 much lower. And, um, you know, obviously there comes with that a certain amount of fright that, you know, CMS or somebody will stop paying for takebacks and the hospital will have to eat the money that it costs to take back a patient to reposition a malposition screw. They'll make it a quote unquote never event. So obviously, you know, navigate, I mean, navigation is just an example, but technology can be, it can be, it could be a real ball and chain sometimes, and you actually become chained to it in ways that perhaps you didn't anticipate that it could potentially have serious downsides. But uh, ever forward, I always say, ever forward. Mm -hmm. uh, so something I wanted to kind of pick up on, uh, Dr. Gatner, I know you said the endoscopic spine surgery is something that you want to do a whole lot more of. Um, obviously, kind of alluded a little bit there to the, the reimbursement shackles. Um, I'm curious, do you see payers looking perhaps a little bit differently down the line at endoscopic spine surgery, given its kind of efficiency in the outpatient setting and given that's where we're going with spine surgery, or uh, is that just something that's not likely to change? Being a good I, I, I think it will change. You know, uh, payers don't want to pay more, period. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, even though over the years we've all made strides in terms of, you know, ERAS protocols and you know, MIS spine, making things better and faster and quicker, getting patients out, much less blood loss, much less rate of transfusion, post-op infection. We're working our butts off over here, but it really seems like the payers could care less. So I'm hoping there will be a time, perhaps a watershed moment for endoscopic spine. I know that 10 years ago, it was looked at as hocus pocus and people didn't take it seriously. And then six or seven years ago, we had our first, you know, actual, you know, training session at the CNS, I think it was in Miami. And, um, you know, it's really re reached legitimacy, thankfully, because uh, there's a lot of goodness that can come from it. So I think we have to really just demonstrate value to them, unfortunately, or at some point, maybe surgeons will start paying, you know, have patients pay them directly to do this, a reasonable fee. That's very hard in a lot of places in America, but, um, you know, perhaps that might be one way to look at it too. But, you know, we try to demonstrate value in everything we do. And endoscopic spine is a perfect example of an eight millimeter incision. And the patient can literally go home, you know, two hours later, some of our colleagues are doing awake T-lift and uh, I don't do those myself because I don't do really do TLS, but um, that's pretty awesome too. And, and there's definitely value in that. So yeah, I mean, we can we can innovate till the cows come home, but we really have got to sort of make an imperative to payers that it's worth the time share, the time savings, the, the risk savings, you know, everything that we are giving to these patients that has to translate to remuneration of some kind at the end of the day, but either to us or the hospitals or both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Uh, Dr. Biden, I'd love to bounce things off you here. Um, kind of experience with surgery at you and your practice, and how do you kind of see it developing in the years? Right. So I, I do quite a bit of minimally invasive uh, spinal surgery, and I think there's a number of approaches in minimally invasive spine. It's not quite clear to me which of them will become the dominant approach, or maybe they'll all remain sort of equivalent approaches. But there's percutaneous approaches uh, to the spine. There's tubular approaches to the spine. Um, and then obviously decompressions and, and fusions. And so looking at the decompression side of things, you know, percutaneous versus tubular. And if you're doing percutaneous, you could add an endoscope. Tubular, most people would use a microscope. Um, I suppose you could add an endoscope, but I don't see too much value on that side of things. But I, I do think essentially what you're getting at is 
a smaller and smaller size of incision, a tubular approach, you're looking at a two centimeter, 20 millimeter incision, a percutaneous approach, you're looking at an eight to 10 millimeter incision. So a smaller and smaller size of incision and whether you're visualizing with an endoscope microscope or potentially just going off of fluoroscopy. So all of that, I think those are, you know, game changers in terms of how we do those surgeries. I do completely agree with Brian. I think the when you look at the landscape, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there's enhanced recovery protocols. There's improvements in terms of outcomes. There's uh, improvements in terms of uh, length of stay. There's improvements in terms of EBL, lower transfusion rates. Surgeries that used to be very dangerous, potentially morbid a number of years ago, today are very safe and routine. And so all of that has occurred and we really haven't seen um, we really haven't seen a willingness from uh, payers, from insurers to uh, say, okay, we, we wanna invest in the next wave of these improvements occurring. And so that's what makes it a challenge. There's always sort of that elephant in the room, which is on that end of things, you know, where, where does the value come from for the payer? And so it's clear to me, uh, you know, and to Brian, the surgeons, where the value is for the doctors, for the surgeons, it's very clear where the value is for the patients. They want to get better, quicker, faster, um, and more safely and efficiently. Um, but, it, you know, on the payer side, <clears throat> that's where I think some of the hard decisions, excuse me, often get made and sometimes not to the benefit of, you know, sort of either one of those entities. Mm. And, and a quick word on obviously having income, having these negotiations with pairs, um, best ways for best strategies to really kind of make sure make sure you're getting the most bang for your buck when, when you're having these conversations. Um, Dr. Biden, anything you can speak to on that? Yeah, I think, you know, there's <clears throat> there's a willingness, you know, obviously our we're in sort of a different setup structured here, you know, than what Brian's in, than what most surgeons in the country are in. Um, and so I'd say, you know, obviously when you sit for those conversations, what you wanna be able to do is demonstrate value to the patient, um, demonstrate that the right things are being done for the right patients. And what you also wanna not be afraid of is to say, this is the value that I believe is demonstrated. And this is the value that I believe should be received in return. And you're, there really should not be a strong um, hesitation in terms of um, if things don't go in the way that you believe they should go in saying no. And in saying, you know, we, we just will agree to disagree or um, okay, we won't. I mean, obviously you can only do that to some extent, um, but in terms of, you know, I think what we don't wanna see is a complete race to the bottom because that doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help the patients, it doesn't help the facilities and doesn't help the hospitals, doesn't help the doctors. Um, and so I think it's it's important to say there's a cost to delivering high quality care. Um, and and remember, you know, there's there's sort of a triangle of things and nobody really wants to talk about this in an open way, but maybe it's time that we do that. There's access, there's quality and there's cost. You can only maximize two out of the three. So if you want full access, which we all do, at the highest quality, which we all do, then there is a cost to that. And if you want low cost, then something has to give, either access or quality. And so I think that's where we really have to balance things, both as individual physicians and 
you know, as just a healthcare community, but also as a society, you know, those, there's some hard questions that we have to face around that. Yeah, really interesting points there. Dr. Kantenberger, any, any, any response from you in terms of the chasing the access, quality and cost before I move on to our last question? Well, the, the heavens opened and angels are singing because finally I'm hearing a colleague saying what I've been saying for 10 years is that you can't get a, you, you can't get a Maserati at a Yugo price. It's just not going to happen. So we, 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 I'm so glad to hear Dr. Biden say that. Yeah. And, and I, I think there is hope. I'm actually involved in the Council of State Neurosurgical Societies and, and also the Neurosurgery Washington Committee and, and the Spine Pack, where we actually discuss things with Congress um, and ultimately have to tangle with insurers. Um, you know, we've been telling them that, you know, there's only so many, so close to the bone that you can cut. Uh, and again, physician, our fees only make up about 7% of the healthcare spend uh, of, of the whole pie. That's, that's doctor's fees. The other, you know, 70% is, 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 is people what they're paying for insurance premiums and, and the cost of drugs. I mean, how much stronger, how much smaller can you get it? And we're been trying to push back a little bit, trying to convince the public and also our elected officials that, you know, we're going to do our, our best. We always have done our best. We're doing even better than before. We're not really seeing the rewards from it, from either MACRA or MIPS, and we're not really seeing the love from the insurance companies. In fact, they just got through this whole, the No Surprises Act is uh, sort of still in contention, but that's really been uh, problematic. And we have uh, uh, colleagues that where their qualified payment amount, which is the amount they get for in-network has gone down again. They just decided to cut it to 65% of Medicare, which is atrocious. So, you know, doctors are gonna keep being doctors. We're gonna keep doing the best job, but if they want people who are highly trained and qualified like Dr. Biden, to take out, you know, their osteosarcoma of their T11 and not kill them and not paralyze them, they're gonna have to pay for it. Um, you know, that's just that's just how it's gonna go. And I think that conversation is gonna continue. But I think innovation helps drive that, you know, especially improvement in innovation. Um, I think it drives the argument and when you're discussing it with a payer, you're probably not gonna get very many places, but if you get a large enough group of people together, for instance, a society and, and agree to disagree, then things might change. You know, things might change once you get people on the same page and start negotiating more as a large group or as, as a specialty that that's not a, that what's happening is not acceptable. And we've kept up our end of the bargain, but it's very clear you have no intention of keeping up yours. That's a little bit more political than I wanted to get, but that's kind of where we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, no doubt a very important uh, conversation to have and some great insights shared by the two of you there. Um, but I did want to pull the, pull the conversation back to a little bit to focus a little bit more on the technology side of things. Um, and Dr. Gantwork, I'll stick with you. I know you've got a bit of experience with augmented reality. Um, something I yeah. find fascinating, had, had the opportunity to kind of see it work up close and personal as well. Yes. Uh, when you're thinking about uh, this conversation between robotics and augmented reality, particularly from the mindset of a, a smaller practice or an ASD, uh, if, you, if you could only kind of shell out the capital for one, are you going for robotic, a robot or are you going for augmented reality? And why would I would, no. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I do have a lot of experience with uh, AR for different applications. Um, I do some consulting with a company that does some AR. But I will tell you, I will take AR all day long over a robot um, because I, I think the visualization, the safety uh, of it, you know, if you could have visual, if you could have AR plus navigation, then you're definitely sold. Uh, robots are fun, but at the end of the day, they're getting better. But 
at the end of the day, they're kind of just really us, uh, drill guides. And that's really what it comes down to is they're drill guides. And um, there is some cool stuff going on with um, some of the other companies that have been in the space for a long time where they're helping you plan cages and um, put other kinds of hardware and doing decompressions. But I think, you know, with, with AR, um, I don't know, there's just such a wide range of stuff you can do in the OR that you can use AR for. Uh, I'd rather have AR pretty much any day of the week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, Dr. Boyd, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you might be looking towards a robot, but I'm going to hand over to you. <laughs> you, you. You probably could have guessed that, but I think, you know, to Dr. Gantworker's point, I, I do think AR is a great technology. And people have to realize we work in planes, and there's many, many planes, particularly on a revision case, like what Dr. Gantworker was talking about. We're working in planes, and you have to translate the planes from 2D images. In some case, okay, you get a 3D model, but let's just take 2D images because that's the standard today. So you have to translate the planes from a 2D image, CAT scan, MRI, x-rays, to the patient. And now let's say you're in a revision surgery where your planes are not as crisp anatomically. So all of a sudden you're sort of struggling against the scar tissue that's eaten up the planes and made what normally would be multiple clear planes into sort of one plane of scar. So AR can be a big advantage when you're facing something like that um, and can be sort of a real nice time saver and a, and a nice safety mechanism. So I think AR has value. Now, the current AR systems, are they adding tremendous value as they will in three, four, five years? I think that's to be determined. There's a lot of nice things coming down the pike on the AR side. On the robotic side, I agree with Brian. I think what you see today is um, you know assistance with the drill guiding, placement of screws. But what you're seeing also is um, uh, changes in terms of decompression on the robotic side. That's coming down the pike very soon. And so the robots very soon will be able to do a lot more than what they could do before. And the key to me is also efficiency. And so the early robotic systems really ate up a lot of time. And what we're seeing now with the better robotic systems is speed, efficiency, able to get in and out. The screws look really good. I mean, they just look pristine because you're placing them exactly as you're drawing them beforehand and they go right in there when it all goes well. Um, the better systems have mechanisms of um, warning you when the robot is gonna be off. And so software is critical. But if you look, if you look at a typical OR, so take your, um, take a vehicle from 1990, take your Ford Taurus from 1990, get into a Ford Taurus today, they're unrecognizable. Not because of what's under the hood. What's under the hood is much better, obviously, than it was in 1990, although, frankly, sort of incremental change there. But what's there interfacing with the drive, I mean, you almost feel like you're driving a computer today. And so that addition of software into vehicles has been a dramatic change from where it was 10, 20, 30 years ago, even five years ago. Get a car today versus five years ago, you'll see a big change. The same thing is happening in surgeries. Software never was a part of surgeries. Software was never a part of motor vehicles. Software was never a part of surgeries. And all of a sudden, you see more and more software-based components that are being added to surgeries. Sometimes, you know, it's really not that helpful, in which case those things are really going to go away. 
Other times it is helpful. It is time-saving. It is safety adding. It is accuracy adding. And those things are going to stay. Um, and so that's where, you know, I think it's really neat. You see technology in terms of software specifically being added to surgery in ways that haven't been there before. And that opens a lot of new opportunities. Yeah, I mean, fascinating to kind of hear, you know, how far robots have come and software in general in such a short space of time. You alluded to obviously the advancement of the decompressions. I'm curious as to how far they'll, be, they'll have come along 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line. Uh, playing that devil's advocate here, what would you say to those who might put up the argument that uh, surgeons might one day uh, replace surgeons? Uh, what's your, well, what, do you, what do you have to say to that? Well, so I'll, I'll comment, I'll, you know, turn it over to Brian, but the first robot case that I did, um, and that was, you know, three and a half years ago now, but the first robot case that I did, the patient said to me, um, I want to meet the robot. And I said, why? And she said, so I know who's doing my surgery. So, and I had to explain, I'm still doing the surgery. The robot is sort of an assisting guide. Um, but it is, so today that's obviously not true. But to your point, Alan, in 10 years, in 15 years, what, what will that look like? And how much more will the robot be able to do? And how much, you know, periods is that oversight from the surgeon? I mean, today it's very hands-on. But what does that look like in 15 years and 20 years? It's really hard to say. I would anticipate that, you know, it will advance more and more such that the robot is doing more and more. Um, but obviously you come up to the great, you know, to the sort of the great hallmark, which is today I can feel, I have tactile feel. This is the one thing that as a surgeon, Brian and I can say the robot cannot do, even in its iterations that are coming out, V2, V3, V4, V5, V6. I have tactile feel as a surgeon. Brian has tactile feel as a surgeon. The robot doesn't. I also know what my last case looked like. I know what my last hundred cases looked like. I know what my last thousand cases looked like. And the robot may know that to some extent, but the robot doesn't know that from an end-to-end -end standpoint. So I think it's going to be a long time coming, but is it totally out of the picture? You know, I, I don't know that I could say that. Okay, interesting. Uh, Dr. Gantwerk, I'd love to get your two cents here as well. Uh, how far wow. actually There's go. a lot. Well, there's a lot there. Uh, Dr. Biden kind of covered, wonderfully covered some really great points, but I will... I will add that, you know, I think the singularity is, is coming is a long way off yet still when, you know, the, the machines sort of are telling us what to do and they're sort of self-aware. But um, I do think there is value in the in preserving the humanity of surgery because uh, I had a moment in today's case where I wasn't sure I'd be able to safely remove the hardware that was in there. And I had actually toyed with the idea of simply just decompressing the patient, bringing her back a different day when we had the appropriate equipment. Now, I don't think a, a, a robot would ever take that moment and say, because it's an older patient, I, I think a robot would ever say like, hmm, is it really worth it? I mean, do I really want to do that? As it turns out, I, I jerry-rigged something that was actually ended up doing a wonderful job. It was very safe. It's, it's a simple, simple solution that worked wonderfully, but I had to think about it, you know, and while I was, you know, doing my decompression and my kind of wheels are turning in my head about how to do it. And, and robots just can't do that. You know, they're just going to follow a sequence of steps, like cookbook, you know, steps. And I think robots should always remain sort of maybe at as like the the little bird on the shoulder sort of whispering to us. Or, and I just don't want to be it the other way around where the robot's doing surgery and I'm the bird on the whispering, you know, you really shouldn't do that. You know, for instance, you know, you, you have a, let's say you have a, a case where you're putting in pelvic fixation. 
Um, full disclosure, I did my first S2 screws as a 12 years post, you know, residency guy, you know, maybe three weeks ago. I'd never done them before. Um, used navigation, and I actually felt when I was going through the SI joint and when I crossed the other side. Um, you know, will a computer won't, or a robot will not be able to ascertain what it's seeing, what it's feeling, and does it make sense between the two? You know, humans can do comparative thinking, and robots, they really can't do what we do in terms of, you know, are, are we seeing what we're seeing or where because we have that sort of innate human doubt that robots will never achieve that we're like am i really where i think i am you know why don't i check a shot here or why don't i just double check my accuracy because i'm not sure i'm in the right place this doesn't make sense or yeah oh yeah there there there's the disc it makes sense there i am i can feel it now um that's kind of what i, I think we, we need to be able to um we need to put that that limit the technology the way it, it, it infiltrates because you know, we've already seen in other areas where we have folks doing surgeries that they shouldn't be doing. And I, my fear is that robots will enable that. And this is conversations I've had with the robot manufacturers five years ago. You know, there may be certain people trying to do these surgeries that we as spine surgeons do, neurosurgeons do, and because the robot will make it so easy, we're worried about other people entering that space and that don't have the acumen that we do, that can't double check things and you know, think before you do. Um, and we want robots to be an enabling technology, but the democratization of spine surgery, I don't think should be one of the, one of the goals. Certainly the safety, safety of spine surgery, please, absolutely all day, but not, not making it so easy that anybody can do it. That's my real concern. Yeah. Not about the robots replacing me, about everybody trying to put in pedicle screws, yeah. if you know what I mean. I, I just want to put an exclamation point on two things that Brian said. First, the 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 patient aspect there's no technology that'll ever have that so at least in the foreseeable future so the robot doesn't see the patient before surgery like dr gantworker did such that he recognized what that patient would or wouldn't want in that scenario um the technology doesn't see the patient after surgery and it can tell you on an image, the screws look good, but it really can't tell you whether your surgery was effective, um, whether your surgery had uh, comorbidities, whether other things occurred. Um, and then, you know, the other component of this is exactly as Dr. Gantworker was mentioning, which is these enabling technologies cannot become supplements for proper training. So the, the basic fundamental is proper, safe, effective, efficient training and, and, and thorough. I mean, we train a long time to do what we do, you know? And so, um, uh, you, you know, all of that uh, has to remain because that additive component is what delivers, you know, ultimately, you know, life-saving uh, interventions. And, you know, otherwise, if that starts getting shortchanged, and if people who really sort of don't belong in an area start getting into an area, then then you can really see things going backwards. Well, all of a sudden the technologies are resulting in worse outcomes rather than better outcomes. Yeah, interesting. Uh, interesting to get both your thoughts there. Um, and definitely kind of see that cause of concern. Uh, down the line, if potentially kind of this next generation or two generations down the line, so it's going to maybe build up a reliance uh, on enabling tech technologies such as those. But um really really fascinating to get both your perspectives there um i'll move on to our last question robots aside uh dr gantt <laughs> 10 years down the line 
what uh, what technologies are you really looking at to kind of move the needle? What are you most excited about, and what do you think is going to have the biggest impact? On well, I think um, arthroplasty is still kind of the the most fun, um, most I think life changing thing that's um, continuing to develop and refine. And what I'm hoping to see, what I've heard is being discussed, is um, lumbar artificial disc placed through a lateral approach, um, where you can do disc arthroplasty more safely in the lumbar spine, um, rather than doing like an open or sort of a transabdominal approach, being able to do it using like a lateral approach and sort of retroperitoneal approach. I think once that happens, and once the kinks are worked out on that, I think that would really allow us to do more arthroplasty rather than fusing everybody. As it is, I think arthroplasty is probably underutilized in the lumbar spine. In some areas, perhaps my area, it's overutilized um, because everybody, you know, everyone gets a disc, uh, perhaps shouldn't, and probably really needs a, an A-lift or a T-lift or an X-lift or, or uh, rather than a disc. But uh, I'm hoping, you know, making arthroplasty in the lumbar spine safer, that's what has, has me very excited. And I hope someone comes up with technology. Um, you know, I was thinking about something, but I think everything's already been patented and trademarked. So I don't think I can do anything in that space other than just maybe give some, some tips on how to make it better. But I, I think that will be a really uh, a great thing. I think um, I think arthroplasty really should be the first choice when you're dealing with young, healthy patients. And, and I hope, you know, over throughout the country, not just LA or Rochester, but maybe everywhere, um, maybe we can have surgeons sort of looking at arthroplasty as an easier thing and not require a skilled vascular surgeon to do the approach for them. I'm very blessed. I have a wonderful vascular surgeon out here who's extremely in demand, but who is kind of the go-to person. And he's made really, made my practice in terms of lumbar arthroplasty a lot more accessible to me. I don't, I just don't do it to every single one that I see, but it, it's made it that when I want to do it, I have somebody I can call. You don't really have that in other parts of the country. You know, uh, you, know you, you really have to, you know, be lucky to have somebody. If you could, if you could change that and bring that into a lateral approach, which a lot of surgeons can do without assisting, um, that would be very exciting. I think better for patients who are carefully selected and appropriately vetted. Fantastic. Um, really appreciate your insights there. I mean, arthroplasty is something I know from a recent conversation, Dr. Gantworks, you, you, if I, if I have your thoughts correctly, you think in the cervical spine particularly, it's going to become the, the gold standard disc replacement, kind of overtake fusion. Um, in the lumbar spine as well, just kind of get your take there. How do you kind of see it developing? Well, I, I did say we'd always need ACDF, um, was my was the quote you took from me, but we'll always need it uh, for sure. I mean, there are certain patients who are kyphotic, they have infections, There's you'll always need ACDF, so very degenerated. I think lumbar arthroplasty will definitely become more widely applied um, if we can perhaps make the approach a little less dicey. And I think really for young patients, you know, especially with work, work comp cases, I thankfully don't do much work comp, but uh, we do see people come through who are young, 47, 46, 42 years old, who've had one or two level A-lifts, and they probably should have had probably nothing, number one, or number two, maybe they should have been really carefully considered for a lumbar arthroplasty, especially young, like my age, 47, um, I would much rather have a, a, a lumbar arthroplasty rather than an A-lift or a, a T-lift. So I hope it's more of a prayer. It's more maybe of a pipe dream, but I, I do hope that we can do more lumbar arthroplasty uh, out there for patients in the right indications. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. 
Um, and Dr. Biden, uh, motion preservation, 10 years down the line, moving the needle, or what are you kind of uh, looking at as most exciting? I, I would agree with Dr. Gantworker's comments. I think fusion is a blunt instrument that obviously has to be used in many cases, cases of gross instability, cases of trauma, cases of kyphosis, um, but we're using it for everything today because there's no other option. So motion preservation, I do agree, is going to be a really important uh, hallmark of what we do, uh, and, and it is today in the cervical spine. In the cervical spine, the, the, the arthroplasty devices have advanced the point where you can do the surgery very successfully and very reproducibly. In the lumbar spine, the load is bigger. So you're not carrying, you know, 20 pounds, you know, 30 pounds. Now you're carrying over 100 pounds, over 150 pounds. And, um, and, and so that's hard. And that's a big challenge for a device that's going to face, you know, sort of endless uh, amounts of motion uh, in that part of the body. Having said that, I, I do think that will be solved for and we will have uh, successful solutions. I do think fusion gets gets utilized in a blunt fashion because there's no other alternative. And once that other alternative becomes more successful, I think that'll become, you know, a real story over the next five, 10 years, just as it has in the cervical spine. So I, I would fully uh, agree with that. Uh, fantastic. Well, we've certainly covered a broad spectrum of technologies today from endoscopic spinal surgery, robotics, augmented reality, and more. Uh, Dr. Gantworker, Dr. Biden, really, again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to speak with us today. Uh, and to our attendees watching, thank you so much for being a part of our Becker's Orthopedics, Biden, and AFC Ventura. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks, sir. Thank you.